Amen? All right. Thank you, Kathy and Donna and Ryan. Appreciate that. As we, of course, always want our focus to be on Jesus, right? And uh, especially this, this week as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection, it's uh, just should be, a, in so many ways, a high point for us. It's, uh, we, we love Christmas, and we should. Uh, but uh, the celebration of the resurrection ought to just really stir our hearts because in his coming back to life, we find life, right? And as we, we look ahead to that celebration uh, next week, there's a sense in which we also need to look um, as, and as so many traditional things do, to what was going on leading up to the resurrection, right? Um, because, of course, without Jesus' death, without his sacrifice for us, there's no place for the resurrection, right? Uh, the fact that, that he came to actually bear our sin uh, in our place and to die... And the resurrection is just the, the saying, it, it all was successful. It was accepted. It was, what, what needed to happen, happened, and now there can be life. And one of the things about, about Jesus is throughout his earthly ministry, of course, he came knowing why he came. Knowing what his mission was. Knowing that he came to save sinners, Right? Uh, to give his life a ransom for many was another way that he put it. And so he lived really a very focused life. There were so many things that he did, and yet throughout his life, he, he kept coming back around and, and reminded those closest to him where it was he was headed. In fact, it's interesting, even at the very beginning of his life, if you go to Luke chapter 2 with me, even before Jesus, as a human being, was doing any speaking for himself, uh, God put the words in, in the mouth of a man to speak for him about that, that focus of his life. And here, this is a passage that we often look at for, uh, for Christmas uh, or shortly thereafter. But Luke 2, verses 34 and 35, you remember uh, when Mary and Joseph took Jesus as a baby to the temple to carry out what was required for a newborn son at the temple. And they meet this man, Simeon, who's waiting, who's been watching for the coming of Messiah, has been promised that you won't die until you have seen the Lord's Messiah. And he says these words to Mary. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And though those words are fairly vague, they point to the fact that the life of this child is going to be a divider for, for everyone. You're going to fall on one side or the other of him, but that also what happens to him is going to pierce his mother's soul. She's going to have great grief over what is going to happen to him. So even here, as a little baby, 
before he could say anything himself, someone is speaking for him. He's, he's headed for something that is a great grief, a great trial, a great hardship. And it was a, but it was a culmination of God's plan that he'd been working out throughout all time. You know, go clear back to Genesis 3.15. Right after Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and he said, oh, but the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And God just has continued to unfold that plan. And then when he comes on the scene, there's a reminder that also the one who would come would be bruised on his heel, right? There would be agony. There would be pain for him. And Jesus had that in mind. And Luke chapter 9, as I considered that, that concept, I, I thought, well, I'm going I'm to jump around quite a bit through the book of Luke. But actually, Luke chapter 9, that seems to be a focus that all other kinds of other things are happening in, in Jesus' ministry. But he keeps bringing it back around, and particularly for his disciples, uh, those that he's training, he brings it back around. This is where I'm headed with this. This is where I'm going. This is what's going to happen to me. So first of all, in Luke chapter 9, verses 20 through 25, we have, have the first time Jesus really interjects all the activity and all the things that are happening with this message. And it's interesting that before, before he gets to these words, he calms the sea. Remember? With the disciples out there in the, you know, and they're in the boat. And, he, and they're, they're terrified that they're going to drown. And Jesus, with a word, calms the sea. He does an act that only God can do. Not long after that, according to Luke's account, he casts out of a man demons. And when they're asked who they are, they say, well, our name is Legion because we are many. So, so he casts out of this man so many demons that they go into a herd of pigs and totally destroys a whole herd of pigs. After that, as he's going to help a young girl that he's been called to help, a woman in the crowd touches just the, the hem of his garment. And she's been sick for years, 12 years, had internal bleeding. She's been plagued by this ongoing issue, and she's healed instantly. Of course, he's on the way as he heals her, to a young girl who was deathly ill, and now she's actually died by the time he gets there. And he raises a young girl from the dead. After that, in Luke, we have the account of the twelve who are sent out, given the power to heal and to cast out demons. So they're out themselves, these men. Miraculously restoring health to people all kinds of different things, and, and casting out demons. And they, they go out and do that themselves, spreading out and spreading the word. And so there's, there's an excitement building. There's amazement that's building. And then the last big event that happens before he brings 
this back around to where he is actually headed is that he feeds 5,000 men plus women and children just from five loaves and two fishes. I mean, how, more, how exciting is that? Here's someone who can, out of almost nothing, and he could have done it out of nothing if he did wanted to, right? But he multiplied what, he, what was presented to him and fed thousands. So all, all of these things are kind of piling one on top of the other. And imagine being one of his followers, being someone who is in that inner circle that he's leading. Like, this is, this is the Messiah, and he's going to take us into utopia, right? Here's the one, we're not going to have any need for health care. We're not going to have any need for, for markets, for food. He, he's just going to give us all the things that we want, right? And when we get to verses 20 through 25, Jesus brings in the focus. He said, verse 20, he said to them, and then he's asking, you know, he's already asked, who do people say that I am? And they've, they've given their, their different things that they've heard people say. In verse 20, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. In other words, the Messiah, the expected one, right? Verse 21, and he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And he was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus' upcoming suffering is what was really on his mind. This is what he was thinking of. The disciples were going to you, you're the Messiah. You're the one who's going to come and, and, and lead us. You're the one who's going to come and, and cast the, the Romans off our backs, right? He says, well, I'm, what I'm going to come, I've come for is to suffer for mankind. His purpose wasn't to come and be their, the conquering king that they were looking for at that time, but to suffer for sinners, to suffer to be killed, but notice also he says, and rise again. Notice he also says, he points out that those who want to follow him will have to take up a life of dying daily to the life that they've had, the life that they wanted. They've got their sights set on something based on what he's done, right? And he mentions the cross here. One of the most horrible ways of dying. He says, you have to take that up every day if you're going to follow after me. Here's why I'm here. Is to die for sinners. If you want to follow me, that life you've been dreaming of that's not what I have for you, it's going to have to go every day. Every day. Set it aside. 
daily. And then we have some other things that are said and done. In fact, the next thing in, in Luke chapter 9 is the transfiguration, where Jesus takes uh, Peter and John and James up on a mountain to pray. The others are left down at the bottom of the mountain, and, and they have this amazing experience up on the mountain of, of his glory being unveiled. And he shines, and, and he's, he's there with, with Moses and Elijah. Overwhelming experience, right? And again, they must have been thinking, wow, this, this man we've chosen to follow, he really is something else. Where is he going to take us? What is he going to give us? How is he going to enrich our lives the way that we want? And then they come down off of the mountain, and there's a man with a, a demon-possessed son, and the, and the disciples that were left down at the base of the mountain couldn't do anything about it. They didn't have the power. They'd, they'd gone out before, and they'd, they'd cast out demons, but they, they couldn't cast this demon out. And they wonder why. But he does. He casts it out. And again, the people are amazed. People are, are, are just looking at him like, here's the one who he can do anything. So what will he do for us? But verses 43 through 45 of, of Luke 9 says, they were all amazed at the greatness of God. So they're even looking in the right place, right? It's not just that they were amazed at this man, but they were amazed at God's greatness. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, boy, he's got bad timing, doesn't he? Everybody's excited, and Jesus brings us downer, right? He said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They did not understand this statement, but it was concealed for them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Jesus turns the focus away from all of the, the, the human perspective and says there's... there's something even greater that God is going to do, that I am going to do here. I've come to fulfill a purpose in that I have come to die. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be turned over to evil men to, to die. But if he is the, the, the mighty one who has caused such wonder in people, why was it the more important thing that they have their minds on and the fact that he, that he says, you know, Get this one thing into your head, right? Let these words sink into your ears. Let this stick with you more than all the rest. I'm coming to give my life. I've come to suffer. So his identity as the Son of God was very important because... To pay for the sins of all the people, he had to be the infinite, eternal God and be fully human. And so he has demonstrated his deity, right? He has demonstrated that, that power over everything, over creation, over demons. 
and his ability to, to do all of these things. But out of that wonder at who God is, he said, now, let this one thing sink into your minds. I've come not to just pour out the things that you want, but I've come to take care of your greatest need, which is your sin. I've come to suffer and to die. And so as, as he continues on, guess what the next thing his disciples are doing? Arguing over who is the greatest, right? They've watched this man who, who can do things that nobody else has ever been able to do. He has an impact on people that no one else is able to have. And so now they're thinking, great kingdom. And, if, and we're in on the ground level. We're, we're right here with this powerful man and all of the things that he's doing. Uh, he's healing the sick. He, he's doing all kinds of things that, that no one else has done. And guess what happens again in verse 51? It says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messages on ahead of, of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Jesus is determined. His mind is set, and, and literally the Greek that's there can be translated, he set his face toward Jerusalem. It's as though... He's, he knows where he's headed, and he's not going to look to the left or to the right. None of the things that are happening in between are going to deter him from going to Jerusalem to the cross. But notice, too, that Luke tells us that it was when the days were approaching for his, what, ascension. So Jesus also has, has this bigger picture. He understood the big picture, that he was going to die for the sins of mankind. But of course, he also keeps reminding them in the previous times and, and had, that he will rise from then and that he is going to ascend and go back and be with the fathers. So he's got the big picture and he wants to keep his disciples focused in on the fact that here's the most important thing right now. Right now, I have to go to Jerusalem. And you're coming along with me, and I'm going to be turned over to evil men. I'm going to turn over to the Gentiles, and I'm going to give my life, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. But I am going to be raised again. Are they getting it? Not really, but they're hearing it. You know, God's given us amazing minds. Those words are being locked in. And so he, in the midst of this, Notice he's not saying, and woe is me. How terrible for me that I'm going to go through this pain. His focus is on informing his, his disciples, preparing them, telling them again and again, getting those words into their hearts and minds so when the time comes, they'll have what they need to think about what it is he's doing. And so then we get to the end of chapter 9, and the chapters that follow were filled with Jesus' teaching, with Jesus encountering people who are against him, 
and him answering them back, in, in talking to people, change, working to change their perspective. What is this life all about? Who is God? And how do you relate to him? And he encounters them through stories and through object lessons and, and all kinds of things throughout those, those next chapters of Luke. But all the time, as he is caring for people by teaching them, as he's challenging them to change their thinking, as he is rebutting people who are attacking him and showing that, that their way is a way of woe, a way of sadness, a way of destruction. All the time, though, he is headed toward Jerusalem. He is moving toward the cross. And so when we get to Luke chapter 18, go with me there to verses 34, I'm sorry, 31 through 34. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. And he, he will, in the next chapter, and what's about to follow, he'll receive his highest praise, his highest acclaim, as he goes into Jerusalem. And Ryan read the account, right? As he came in, arranged to have the donkey, he fulfills all kinds of prophecies by riding into Jerusalem. This is right before that happens. And the people are, are putting down the palm branches, right? And they're saying, Hosanna, or save now, Lord. And, he, and they're calling out for him to be the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You are the promised one. Come and rescue us. Be our king. He gets the greatest acclaim, the great, greatest praise. And, and the leaders, of course, remember the Jewish leaders, they don't like that. And they say, tell your, tell your followers to stop. Remember his reply? If they stop, even the rocks will cry out. It was necessary for this acclaim, for him to be received into Jerusalem like a king. But he had prepared his disciples beforehand with these words. Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34 says, He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. And so having prepared them, the words are there in their brain, right? Available to be retrieved, but not comprehended, not understood, and then they go into what we call the triumphal entry. But Jesus says not, it's about the things that the prophets said. In other words, we're here at the culmination of things you've been told about, that your people have been told about for centuries and centuries. Things that have been said, and, and uh, Psalm 22 is, is one that fits perfectly with the things he describes. Psalm 22, we'll just read part of it. 
Psalm 22, verses 12 through 18, are a perfect description of the kind of death that Jesus was about to die in just, just a few days from that point. And he says, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. And of course, Jesus on the cross, as he looked around, what were they doing? They were mocking him, right? They were saying, you, you're the king of the Jews. You're the son of God. Get yourself down. Verse 14, he describes what he would go through. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Perfect description centuries before, of the death that Jesus would die. Just one of the many prophecies that the prophets had given to the people of Israel. And Jesus warns his disciples ahead of time, don't, don't get all excited about the acclaim. I am here to fulfill, to bring to fullness what was prophesied about me. And he gives those specific details there, right? says, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles. One of the, one of the worst things that a Jewish person could, could have done to them, to be humiliated at the hands of people who weren't even Jewish. Then he took on our shame. I will be mocked. The one who, there was nothing to mock him about, right? He was perfect, sinless. And yet he would be shamed in public, mistreated and... What does it mean to be spit upon? Huge disgrace. A huge shame. In other words, you aren't, you're worth nothing. It's the idea of to be spit upon. And then after they have scourged him. In other words, beaten. And of course we know in the account that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And they will kill him. He lays it out. Here's what's coming. In order. And the third day, he will rise again. So he's laying out these terrible things just before all of the glorious things, right? Each one of these things that, that are going to happen to him don't fit who he is. They're, they've, they've been coming to the realization that he is the Messiah, and they've been coming to the realization that he is the Son of God. How do these fit with that identity? But he moves with purpose and informs his disciples in advance for their sakes. Notice it's not, just make sure you feel sorry for me because I'm going to, no. He, he is, he's telling them in advance for their sake so that, that they have that information in their brains so that they can be processing as it happens. He is being gracious to them. It even mentions for them the resurrection so that this truth will be in their minds when the time comes. 
So he tells them in advance that he will rise from the dead. And when the time comes that he's resurrected, if you remember later on in Luke, the angels tell the women who come to the grave, right? He is risen just as he told you, and they take it clear back to Galilee. And then the women take that information to the apostles so that the apostles can start processing and saying, oh yeah, some of them are like, oh, we, don't, that, that, we can't accept that, but Peter runs to the grave, right? Starts, starts to click. It starts to process. So Jesus here, before he ever goes to the cross, is getting them ready. Even though it makes no sense to them at this point, and he is very conscious of what he will suffer, but still thinking about those who are his, thinking about those who will be impacted by that process of his death. And as he moves closer and closer to the cross, he goes, the triumphal entry, has the Last Supper. Tomorrow night, you'll have more about that, right? Passover. And as it points to him with, with his disciples. But then where does he go? He goes to Gethsemane. And his mind very much on the fact that he is about to give his life. So turn with me to chapter 22. Uh, first of all, to verse 37. Because before he even arrives at Gethsemane, maybe even on the way, he says, For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Pointing out. But it's, this is God's thing. This is what God has been telling us about all along. Be ready. This is going to happen. And then if continue on down to uh, verse 39. I'm sorry, that was actually verse 22, wasn't it? Verse 37 says, For I tell you that this is which was written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which, was re which refers to me has its fulfillment. So before he arrives there, first he reminds them again that it's going to happen. Verse, verse 22 that I read. Uh, then verse 37, he quotes out of, where is that found? Well, it's the end of Isaiah 53. He goes to the end and says, basically, all that, that lined up in Isaiah 53 before this, it's talking about me. I am about to be pierced through for your transgressions. I am going to bear the sins of many. And I am going to intercede for the transgressors. In other words, I'm going to come in. I'm going to take your punishment. I'm going to take what you deserve. Just like Isaiah 53 lays out. He says, you know these scriptures. So he just quotes a bit of it and says, think of the whole thing. That's what's going on here. And then he continues on then in verses 39 through 46. And it says, And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray and saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup 
from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently and great sweats. Sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping with sorrow and said to them, Why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. You might have noticed in verse 40, as well as verse 46, his concern for them. Both as as he starts this, this time in the garden, and then as he wraps up what he has to say here, Luke's account of, of what happens in the garden is fairly short, but he says, pray that you not enter into temptation. And again, Jesus' concern, though he's going to the cross, he keeps a concern for his, his disciples because they would be in the way of a great spiritual attack. The accomplishment of what he was doing would mean the defeat for Satan and all of his demons. It would be the defeat of sin be the defeat of death. And of course, that's the last thing that Satan wanted, right? So the pressure to turn away from what he was about to hit was going to be excruciating in and of itself. If his disciples could be used to stop him from going forward, Satan would use them. He would take their doubts, their fears, and try to use them to stop Jesus. In fact, Uh, Jesus, remember, told Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you would endure. So he says, pray. Pray. His concern is for them. But then he enters into, it says, extreme agony. That word agony in and of itself speaks of a great struggling conflict. It was used of athletes who were straining with all of their might. And so he was entering into a conflict, straining with all of his might. And what he was about to face was so powerfully terrible that he he experienced a medical condition that's that's extremely rare, but where his blood hemorrhaged into his sweat. And he actually had drops like blood coming out of him in his sweat. It's very rare. It only occurs in very extreme conditions. So that tells us how much stress, how much pressure Jesus was under as he considered what he was about to do and going to the cross. In fact, here the man who who healed so many, who cast out demons, who calmed a sea, is searching for any alternative other than moving forward. Prays to his father, if there's any way that you can take this cup from me, please do. But not my will, but yours be done. See, but what he's he's looking ahead to is, is beyond the pain of the torturous death that he'll experience in crucifixion. It was more than the physical pain that he would have. Because he's he's saying there there must not be any alternative for me to move forward. Because what I'm about to experience is the worst possible thing that there is. And what was it that he was dreading so much? 
Well, let's, let's switch to the, to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. As he is on the cross, it says, Now from the, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And those are the opening words of Psalm 22, which I read from earlier. This is what Jesus dreaded so greatly that he sweat drops of blood. Notice there on the cross, if you look through the accounts, there, there are no words of anguish that are recorded over the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross. Or words recorded of anguish over the terror of not being able to breathe as his chest was constricted by the weight of his body when he couldn't hold it up. He didn't cry out and say, Oh, the great pain! Oh, the panic! Oh, the terrible nature of not being able to breathe. But when there was darkness over the earth, representing that his father had turned his back on him because of the sin that had been put on him, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The separation from his father symbolized in such a dramatic fashion by darkness falling for those three hours, caused a cry of great distress from the man who was God. That was the most horrible thing that any person has ever experienced. In fact, that is the penalty for sin, is separation from God. Now, I'm not, not saying it, it isn't about the fiery descriptions of hell. Those, I believe, are literal and real. But I think what's even worse is that idea of separation. Look at what 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says when it describes those who refuse to obey the gospel. In other words, believe in Christ and be, and be saved. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. A brief but very powerful description where he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That's the essence of eternal punishment, is to be away from the glory of the Lord. Or go back to Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, when, when there are those who, who claim to be connected to Christ, and He says... No, no, you're not with me. Matthew 7, verse 23 says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. What's the punishment? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Or in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 41. <clears throat>
says, And he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. And yes, yeah, eternal fire. But what's first? Depart from me. That, that separation from God is really the, the experience of sinners from the time they're born in this life, because we're born as sinners, right? The essence of the first sin was to choose doing things our own way, to abandon what God had said, don't eat from the tree. And Eve, and then she gave to her husband, Adam chose, no, we'll go our own path. And they cut themselves off by those actions from the life giver. He said, you will surely die. And, and in them, that moment, they did die spiritually. They separated themselves spiritually from their creator and were in need of a savior, need of someone who, the one who would come and crush the serpent's head, right? They had to put their faith in that one who would come in order to regain life. But when we cut ourselves off from the life giver, we, we can't expect that it won't bring us death, right? We can't cut ourselves off from the one who is life, as we saw last week, and not expect there to be death. And as sinners, we all experience spiritual death. That's how we're born, is spiritually dead, because we're born sinners. And even while we're alive in our bodies, we're spiritually dead until we come to know Christ and He gives us life. But even those who are spiritually dead still enjoy the presence of God to some degree in this world. He is present. We still have the image of God within us, right? It's not totally obliterated by sin. And then we experience common grace where God sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, he heaps blessings on us whether we're, we believe in his son or not. There are all kinds of good things that are ours. So we aren't completely cut off from his presence as we live in this life. But when we die physically, then there's a division. Those who are in their sin with a record of rebellion against God will experience the fullness of death. Complete separation from God's, the evidence of God's presence. Jesus experienced the fullness of separation from his Father, so we won't have to. In that time when there was darkness, he was experiencing that separation from God, which to him was the, the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone. And he understood it the most fully because he had the closest union with his Father. They had always been perfectly united together. Always had perfect fellowship. Always had the, the best relationship that exists. And we're torn apart for the sake of sinners. And I believe in those, those hours, Jesus experienced an eternity of separation from his Father because he is eternal God, the only one who could do that. But so the, the, on the other side of that, that separation that, or, that, or that division that happens at death. And there are those who will be totally separated from God, but those who put their faith in him. There's, there's the joy of saying, I will have fullness of joy in his presence. 
In other words, that separation that's ours because we continue to be sinners will be pushed away, will be obliterated, will be cleaned up, and we will be able to have complete fellowship with our Lord, with our God who created us. In fact, how could Jesus move, go through this worst of all things? Well, as we finish, go with me, please, to Hebrews chapter two, 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Because that explains what was on his mind and even goes, takes us back to the fact that when the time for his ascension was coming, he set his face toward Jerusalem. But there it tells us, sorry, relatively new Bible here, doesn't turn right. How do we keep going? Well, it's by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. There is a joy greater than avoiding the separation from his Father that Jesus was looking forward to experiencing. Can you try to, to comprehend that a little bit? It's hard to believe but it's wrapped up in our being saved out of our horrible situation as sinners. That brings the greatest glory to God. That is a greater joy than avoiding the horribleness of what happened to Jesus on the cross. He said, I'm willing to pass through that because of a great joy on the other side that makes it all the right thing, the good thing, the best thing to do. Jesus, for the joy set before him. And then he invites us to join him in his joy. And as he put it when he was talking to his disciples before he went to the cross, he says, I tell you these things so that your joy may be full, right? He wants us to have that complete and full joy. And so he invites all those who will put their faith in him to join him in that, having had your sins forgiven when you put your faith in him. Being given the gift of eternal life, which is to know Jesus and to be united with him. That's what Jesus was heading for as he went to the cross. That's some things to sit and contemplate and wonder at during this week as we prepare for the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I, I don't comprehend really the things I've just so confidently stated. And I'm thankful that I can't fully comprehend them because that tells us of, of your greatness, of your amazing nature and, and all, uh, the, the awesomeness of what you have done in Christ. But help us this week as we prepare to celebrate the resurrection to, to know and understand more and more fully what it is he has done for us, to, to take in and to celebrate uh, the fact that he loved us so much that he would go there. For you are such an amazing, loving, and giving God. And be glorified as we do that. In Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.